like literally in, on a, on basically a napkin, I drew out like what the idea would look like. And I was like, huh, so you would need cleaners in the space, okay. But the cleaners don't go there, so they would go from place to place. The spaces would be this many square feet. And I literally just like, I threw up the idea on a piece of paper while waiting for another meeting in this bar in San Francisco. Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to a New York Times best-selling author, an early tech adopter and enthusiast, and the co-founder and chairman of Breather, Julian Smith. In the last 10 years or so, we've seen a dramatic shift in Western working culture. Flexible work hours, open office spaces, new forms of benefits, and of course, lavish office perks startups have made infamous are standard today. These drastic changes in how companies organize, employ, and compensate employees creates openings for massive startup opportunities. Slack set the standard for new forms of internal communication, WeWork rewrote the book on communal office space, Zoom raised the bar on video conferencing, and the list goes on and on. Now, Julian Smith has a track record of adopting new technologies and digital mediums before they become mainstream. While people rush to the podcasting scene today, Julian started his first podcast in 2004. As people praised Twitter for being an all-encompassing, versatile tool, Julian was a 10,000th user on the platform. And one item that Julian eventually became enamored with was workspaces. He questioned how the rise of remote workers and companies seeking to provide new experiences for their staff would have an impact on workspaces, and even more, how technology would play a role. Now, you'll hear all about how Julian and his co-founder Katarina conceptualized and assembled Breather into one of Montreal's most famous startups. But let me just say this about Julian. Every single insight he shared on this episode is jam-packed with substance and wisdom. What else would you expect from a guy that has helped his company raise over $120 million in funding? I was brought up in an education system that really did not give me many choices. Uh, Not that it didn't, not that it prevented me from, it didn't prevent me from doing anything, but it never really informed me as to what the choices were. So for example, I was never aware until I was an adult that design was a thing and that people did that. My father ran a consulting business for many years and and he worked for himself, but I did not ever think of someone as being an entrepreneur. I knew people owned businesses, but I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, So I didn't really have, although maybe my father was an influence in that way, I never had anyone who's like around me who was like a, a risk taker per se, uh, and, you know, all of the people that I knew in my ecosystem when I was very young were all kind of just employees of things for the most part. So it was never, it, it's, there's nothing, yeah, most entrepreneurs, they look at their parents, their parents are entrepreneurs, and that was, that was the inspiration for them. Mm-hmm. You would kind of just happen, just happen. Uh, you know, I just figured out I couldn't work for anyone else. Like, right. it, it just was not working. Uh, I what, would. What led to that experience? So what was your first job working for someone else? That oh, maybe? God. Uh, maybe... I, oh, I worked at Eaton's. Of course, I worked at I worked in a in a in a, uh, a department store for two months. I've been fired from almost every job I've ever been at. By the way, so that one I was fired at after two months. Thank you, Eric, if you're listening, uh, for getting me that job. And uh, that's also where I met Katarina, my co-founder. As a matter of fact, when we were about 16 and 17 years old. Uh, so, and then every job that I've ever had. Uh, was always kind of a bad job. I, I dropped out of college. I dropped out of university. I never got a degree in anything. And for the most part, uh, I was on a kind of, I don't want to say a road to nowhere, but a road towards no particular career of any, uh, you know, uh, any real choice of mine uh, up until kind of I accessed the internet. And when I accessed the internet, kind of everything changed. What, what, around when was, how old were you when you kind of first accessed the internet and realized there's a whole new world in there? Well, the the first real interactions that I ever had with people online were on BBSs, which are back in the day, I'm 39, I'm about to be 40, we should not talk about that. Uh, and BBSs back in the day, if you're my age, it was like a phone plugged into literally into your computer and you dialed another phone number. 
and that phone number was connected to another computer and you just paid for the long distance if it was long distance and you accessed another computer remotely and it was like a message board. So that was the first time that I remember, and I've thought about this a lot, uh, where I had access to people that were not in my immediate physical circle in Timberley. And the reason that that's important and the reason it became important to me is because I began comparing myself to people that were outside my local vicinity. And it caused me to have kind of a higher ambition than I initially had. And that's happened to me kind of over and over and over again. So you you realize that now there's people that, that you have access to and, and that opens up a lot of opportunities and a lot of entrepreneurs, when they mm-hmm. discover the internet, you just start imagining all sorts of things. What is the first thing you imagine you could do with this technology that you're discovering? Well, actually, it was it was podcasting. So, so in 2004, when podcasting literally had just been invented, uh, I was... Uh, I was a vegan at this time for some reason. And I, so I, I was maybe like subscribed to a mailing list about veganism from this guy who had written a couple books about veganism and industrial agriculture and so on. And uh, he was like, I've started a podcast. And so I was like, I have no idea what that is. And I found my way to different podcasts. And I was like, I should definitely start one of these. So in front of an iMac G4, which is that Sunflower iMac that you could change, move the screen on, it was a super beautiful computer, happened to have a really good microphone, and I started podcasting. And that was the first sort of connection that I ever had online. And that's, if you know, if people know me from that time, it's because I started a really popular podcast that got plugged into a network. And I suddenly went from a dude in my basement to still a dude in my basement, but with a show that was on Sirius Satellite Radio. And that was the first kind of real thing that ever happened to me online about 15 years ago. What what was that show about? It was the <laughs> It was the first hip hop podcast in the world. Hip hop podcast. Yes. I played uh, independent hip hop because you couldn't get uh, permission from major labels and nobody wanted to get sued at the time. This doesn't matter anymore. Uh, before YouTube, before iTunes ever had podcasting, and we were the first shows, me and about five, six other shows were the first shows ever put on iTunes. Were you recording your own hip hop songs as well? No, <laughs> no. Uh, but I, I got sent, you know, records and I knew a lot at that time about uh, non-mainstream uh, label uh, rap music. And, you know, and, and so that's kind of how I got started. I had podcasts before I had a blog, then my blog got popular, like all this other stuff. So at what point did that become a career podcasting? Like, was that yeah. your employment? Mm-hmm. And and where did you see that going at the time? Yeah, so I, I, was, uh, I was really fortunate. I lived in a loft on Iberville, far out there. And uh, my rent was like $200 a month with like five other people. And it was a huge, crazy loft. And I had basically no debt. And I had... Uh, not a great deal of debt, and I had almost no costs to my life. So I quit my call center job, uh, which I worked for Fido at the time, uh, and it was my last job that I ever had before becoming CEO of my own companies. And uh, I was like, I'm, I'm going to try and make this work. And I, so I went out, and I, I was probably the first professional podcaster in Canada, and I went out, and I was given you know sponsorship by various companies, and that's where I started my sort of quote unquote career working in on the internet. Right, right. So you, I mean, you have this podcast, it's going to lead you into blogging, you're, you're diving into the world of the internet. What did, what did you do next from there? What was, what was your, your mm. next plan of action? I mean, yeah. did you just think you were going to podcast forever and blog forever? Yeah, well, whenever you... you start something new, you're like, this is my thing. And then it ends up kind of it, something, some stuff works, like everything. Some stuff doesn't work. Uh, you capture some opportunities. You miss some opportunities. But then it leads you part of the way should you persevere for enough time. And so in my case, where it led me is it led me to have a super popular, very famous blog uh, where... A lot of uh, sort of super viral posts existed, and it developed into an affiliate marketing career where I was able to build websites and and also for myself and for others and basically selling stuff online and like blah, blah, blah. And I did that for a number of different years as the social web was emerging. I had some of the first accounts on Twitter, on Facebook, like on everything which allowed me to develop an audience on those channels as well and get to know a lot of the early players. It sounds like you're pretty ahead of your 
time, you know, from podcasting to social media to building websites. I mean, mm. so you're building websites. Were you were you building these yourself? Were you coding them? Yeah, I did everything basically myself. I ran a uh, a sort of a, a very successful uh, without getting into the specifics. I got I I ran a very successful sort of web slash affiliate marketing company and uh, that led all of that stuff into a book deal in 2000. Well, that came from an ebook. So we wrote, me and a, a co-author, Chris Brogan, wrote a, uh, a set of ebooks around 2007, 2008. Someone grabbed this at Wiley Publishing, which is a traditional publishing house in the United States, and wanted to write a book or get a book published. So me and Chris Brogan, a Kind of, kind of another famous online dude. Uh, we co-wrote a book called Trust Agents, which was published in 2009 and became a New York Times bestseller. Hmm. Chris, Chris, your co-author is from Montreal as well. No, he's uh, he's from Boston. They or in put that you area. together. Uh, no, we knew each other because at, oh. the, at that point the internet was still relatively small. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, proportionately, uh, it was proportionally much less fucked up than it was purer than it is today. Mm-hmm. And so everyone on Twitter literally just knew each other. I was the 10,000th user on Twitter, to give you an idea. And uh, and me and Chris Brogan, who ended up, we ended up writing two books together, uh, were in the middle of everything. So, you know, Twitch, which was bought by Amazon for a billion dollars, was started by a bunch of guys and it used to be called Justin TV. And Justin Khan is the guy who started it. And he was in that scene, as we were. And Gary Vaynerchuk, who is kind of a household name now, uh, is who was also our first investor at Breather, is kind of a buddy of mine, so to speak, from that space. And there's a bunch of us that come from there, and they've gone on to do a whole bunch of different things. Uh, so when you asked the question earlier, which you did about people kind of being being early on in things, me noticing things and kind of I don't know, grabbing onto them or whatever uh, before they become mainstream is actually a huge part of how I've been able to get where I am so far. So what do you look for in, call it a platform, in, in a trend, uh, a developing industry? What do you look for that that makes you so successful in uh, being there before the the adoption happens? Well, I mean, at first it's often self-interest, right? Like Breather was started, for example, because of the fact that I needed space myself. I didn't realize what I was starting and the ultimate size of what I was starting with Katarina, but I knew that I needed space. And similarly, when we were doing things in podcasting, it was just personal interests. But like one should look at a whole bunch of things. When you look at trends, you should just see, okay, so something is emerging. What can it catch on to? Often I think about it like as a form of Jenga, like what what blocks are already on the, you know, the, the, the ground, so to speak, that we can build on top of. You know, the same way that Twitter was built off text messaging, which it was initially, and then companies were built on top of Twitter and Facebook, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Like the way that Uber, which just went public a few weeks ago or last week, two weeks ago, uh, was built off of GPS, which came out on, with the iPhone 4, I think, in 2010. If no GPS, no Uber. So you catch on to new things as they are emerging and you look at them and you say, huh, like what is that going to facilitate often that is an existing behavior or a new behavior that can be done with new stuff? And that tends to turn into, I don't know, that's, that's how everything is ultimately actually built. So you, you publish your 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 book um, after a couple ebooks. Um, you've, you know, you've built up quite an audience for yourself. You're, you're producing content. Um, what do you do next? Is that where you start to come up with a concept for breather or was there something in between? My objective was just like, get my ideas out there and that, and on, on my, with my book and with my blog to get my ideas out there, get known for having interesting things to say and try and develop something. But after three books, I was like, I can keep doing this forever, but I feel like I have like other stuff I can do. And I was starting to have this idea around private space and why private space was interesting and what could be done with it. And that led me and Katarina to start Breather in 2012. 
Okay. Why did you approach? Did you approach Katerina with this with this idea? Did she approach you? And 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 why did you? Who did you see you needed to build this concept with? Yeah. So when you have a founding team, what you're looking for is someone that you can a set of people, ideally two, three, some other number. You do it yourself, but it's harder. Uh, is uh, to find a team where. The, the stuff is complementary, but there's mutual trust and a kind of a, a general agreement about how decisions will be made. So what me and Katerina had in that was a longstanding relationship. We know each other from the age of 16. Uh, we had developed careers individually and crossed each other like a number of different times. And so we met at like a, a place I was doing a speaking event again, and we had met and seen each other like several, several times in between. And I knew that she was in physical design and she was strong on operations and design. And I was strong in like tech and marketing and product. And uh, I, it turns out also fundraising, but I didn't know that at that time. Uh, and so we basically chose to work together on this idea uh, where if I had done it alone, there's a set of things I absolutely would not have been able to do. And I mm -hmm. think she would probably say the same. So when you get this idea, you, you meet up with Katerina, you start talking about it, you, you, you work out an agreement to be co-founders and work on it, mm -hmm. execute it together. What's your first step for getting a, a massive idea like Breather <laughs> off the ground, right? Yeah. So like, like mm -hmm. where do you even start? You start with the website, you start with a pitch deck, you yeah. start with it. Well, so in this case, and actually there's another part that almost nobody knows, which is that there was a third co-founder for a brief period of time. There was a, a tech co-founder, whose name I won't mention, uh, but where the relationship, and this happens in a lot of companies, actually soured very early on. And this person who is definitely not listening to this is someone with a high profile and someone who I actually respect a lot, but where the relationship was just difficult. And so you know that thing early on, if you have that problem and if you know that a relationship is going to get strained really fast, it's actually much better to not start a company with that person. And so the decision to not work together ultimately ended up being a good one. Mm. So that said, uh, at the very beginning, the idea that I had was that space was scarce and difficult, and there were not a lot of places that someone could just go where the space basically would not tell you what to do. I know this is weird, but I was like, wow, space is very useful. And we had Airbnb in our mind at the time. Uber, I was one of the first users of Uber back mm. when it was just black cars in San Francisco because I had been to a, like a party and I had found out about it. Mm. And so I was noticing this ability to connect mobile phones and the physical world and what you could do with it. Before that, though, there was this idea of, oh, space is like really useful and really hard to get to. And ironically, it came a lot from me walking around in Montreal where I was noticing that like the only places you can go were coffee shops or bars. And I was like, but I just I just want to go somewhere and just do things, whatever I had on my to-do list at that time. Somewhere that's not an office space and not a coffee yeah. shop and not In actuality, bedroom. what I wanted was a personal office, but I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't want my personal office to be in one place because I was often in various places. So over time, I developed this idea. And I remember I was like pitching a dude, some random dude from Google Ventures back in the day. And after this meeting, I have a, another kind of hangout with some startup people and I have this really kind of bad version of this idea in my head because ideas will go through iterations and they'll begin one way and they'll end another way. Uh, and so I have about 20 minutes and I go to this bar and I'm like, why? At the time it was like one big space instead of like several small spaces. And I'm like, why Why is this one big space? That's, that's stupid. I wish it could be closer to the customer instead. And I was like, why do I have to hire employees for this big space? That doesn't make any sense. How can I get this to zero employees per space? And progressively, I am like literally in, on, a, on basically a napkin, I drew out like what the idea would look like. And I was like, huh, so you would need cleaners in the space. Okay, but the cleaners don't go there. So they would go from place to place. The spaces would be this many square feet. And I literally just like, I threw up the idea on a piece of paper while waiting for another meeting in this bar in San Francisco that I probably could never find again, by the way, this bar, although I wish I could. And, <laughs> and I took that and then someone said, uh, people were pitching their ideas at this, this meetup I was having in this bar. My friend Rob was there and, uh, and they were going around the table and they were saying, 
oh, I do this and this company. And I was like, I'm going to fucking pitch this new thing. I'm going to do it right now. And I said, as I soon have, as you develop uh, it right there, I was like, yeah. I know I have it. I, I just knew. Right. And, and they're like, and what are you doing? And I was like, zip car for rooms. And everyone was like, I have no fucking idea what that means. And that makes no sense. This is something that Jeff Bezos, at, who started Amazon, uh, had in the way that he made the decision, which is like, wait, what if I'm wrong about this? Okay, well, if I'm wrong, I'm going to waste some time on this idea, and it'll be kind of a waste. Okay, well, what if I'm right? Okay, well, if I'm right and I don't do it, and someone else does it, I'm going to kill myself. Okay, <laughs> so then it's what if I'm right and I do do it? Well, then I'll be a billionaire. Okay, so I should do it regardless of if it turns out to be right or wrong, because the upside of being right is much more interesting than the, and, than the danger of being wrong and wasting a couple of years. So I said, okay, well, I'm definitely going to do this thing. And as soon as I changed the idea from bad idea A to idea with some legs B, uh, I, we were able to bring investors together, bring people together, and raise about a million and a half dollars off of just like basically off the idea. Like a pitch deck right. with nothing else. So okay, so so that was your first step. Let's mm -hmm. let's put this together in a in a in a pitch deck. Yeah. Organize the ideas mm -hmm. and raise a bunch of money right away. Yeah. And I knew as soon as I'd shifted that idea, I knew it. Katerina knew it. Uh, and investors knew it right away. They were like, this is something. I remember talking to talking to a guy at the airport, because on my way back from San Francisco to Montreal, there's like a layover in Las Vegas. And I meet a friend of mine, Marco, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, Marco, I've got these two ideas. Let me let me tell you about these two ideas. And he tells you, well, okay, idea A, which is the bad one, uh, it's like pretty interesting, and I guess it could be something. And he goes, but Julian, if you can do idea B, like that's pretty amazing. And idea B is the company that we worked and to build, which is Breather, as right. you know it today. Right. So you presumably have not raised any money before that, before this, this first idea. Have you, have you raised money from investors? So my question is, where do you even start if you want to raise a yeah. million dollars for a new idea? That that, you that's the thing is I had, this is, this is like, you need a reputation. You need to have, to have done something before because the, the loop that you can get stuck in if you're an early company is like, I'm going to raise 150 from investors. Okay, great. Well, what's your next round going to be? If you're in Montreal or another kind of, let's call it, tier three plus startup city, uh, then that's super challenging because you're going to go from your 150 to your 300K around. Like I have a friend of mine right now who's actually ex-Montreal, now in New York, product guy. His first round was 150 on a $5 million cap. And his next round now, he's doing 1.5 million. So it's very much more similar to what I did. Mm. I put in my own money in order to try and test different things, pay different employees or contractors, da 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 And then we went out and we raised uh, 1.5. Mm. And it was led by Real Ventures, who is here, Canadian seed fund that's become quite well known. And uh, that is typically how I would advise someone else to do it as well. But the other trap, the trap is, oh, I'm raising 150, I'm raising 300, I'm raising 750. Well, you're three rounds in now. And you've only raised like a million bucks. Mm -hmm. That's super hard. So you're talking about kind of fast tracking to to a larger series from from a small seed to a large series A. The ideal of the ideal situation is you put in your quote unquote friends and family money, which in my case was just me. Okay, but that's rare. And instead, you're putting together a few hundred grand or something. It's just friends and family, and then you have some sense of what people want, and then you go out and you raise. In this ecosystem, and I have people that I know that are raising $3.5 million seed rounds right now. So uh, some single digit millions of dollars on a decent valuation. Right, right. Okay. Before I, I, I get we get more into Breather, tell us about Breather at this stage. What, yeah. what is, how does it work for, yeah. for those that don't know? What is the, yeah. the... Yeah, so Breather is a flexible office company. And so it began with small spaces like the one that we're in today uh, that are probably around 500 square feet that you unlock with an app and that give you access for, let's say, certain number of hours or like a couple days for flexible office space or day office space or meeting rooms. And then over time, we've progressively enlarged the size of space that we do 
and the size of our transactions. So you can still book an hour, two hours inside of Breather's platform today. But the average person is booking a much longer period of time. And over time, we've entered into the flexible office industry, which is adjacent to WeWork mm. and adjacent to other companies like Notel, which is another meaningful sort of New York one. And uh, the way that we think about that is that Breather is entering into a very large industry, which is the flexible commercial real estate industry, which is insanely huge. It's one of the largest number, the largest transactions that occur in the universe. It's like 15% of the GDP of the United States mm. commercial real estate. So a flexible portion of that, which is like maybe 10% or 15% of flexible of, of office space, well, is we, an insane we, size. We know of flexible space, commercial space from the examples you just gave, WeWork and, and Breather. Mm -hmm. yeah. What other examples exist of, of flexible commercial space? Uh, there, there are traditional companies like Regis, which you would think about it, public companies that have been doing it since the 80s or 90s. Uh, but there's actually very few players, and most time, most of the time, if you're dealing with commercial space, you're dealing with directly with a landlord or a broker. And so, what WeWork attempts to do, what Breather tries to do, and what other players in the industry try to do, is to build a brand and a vertically integrated set of experiences. Instead of dealing with who's the broker, who's the landlord, who's the design guy that's going to design my office. Who am I? Like these 10 people that you're dealing with, right. you deal with one provider. Right. And that and provider so. either in the case of WeWork could be something like a WeWork, but it's it's co-working. And in other examples might be HQ, what they call HQ as a service, which is like basically a fully developed office space and it's yours and it's 5,000 square feet or something. And for smaller transactions, it's meeting rooms like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, okay, so you, you you raise a bunch of money for for your concept of, of breather uh, very early on. Um, you, how do you deploy that that initial funding that you mm -hmm. got? Because essentially, what you're building here is you, you need to to build up your inventory, and then you need to build up the you know the the, yeah. the supply side as well. So you, mm -hmm. What where do you start with building that kind of double market double yeah. sided marketplace? Uh, so, I mean, so we initially tried to get zero leases, for example, right? And what we noticed over time is that the only way that people, landlords, would give us spaces with leases, almost all companies at scale have gotten to scale, like breathers or larger, with leased square feet. And that is the only way that people in my industry today basically can scale. But what you do with any round of funding, like million and a half, 40 million, whatever, it doesn't matter, is you get to the next stage of confidence. And what that really means is, in our case for our first round, was launch some spaces, bag, borrow, steal for those spaces, whatever you could do to make them a reality, and then see whether people will book them at all, which we didn't have an app. So we literally just put a lock on the door. Like literally, there was like a you know those lock boxes that you have for vacation homes. We like put one next to a fucking door in Notman House, and we're like, book this through me, my Facebook account. Right. And people would do it, and then when they would leave, it was like early version of product market fit, which right. you try to get. It's like people just validation, basically. Yeah, just like, hey, dude, how did you like it? Oh, it's cool. No, no, no. Why did you use it? Well, I was trying to get away from my wife, or like whatever. Yeah, it's like yeah. some people would say random stuff. Oh, I used, I worked a little bit, and it'd be like, how much would you pay? I don't know, fifteen dollars an hour. Okay, give it to me. And then <laughs> people would be like, what? <laughs> I'm like. If it's worth $15, give me $15. And now you find out really whether something has value. Because that changes once there's a transaction. Once it's a real place. transaction. Right. So some people would, in fact, would, would send me 15 bucks. Like, I don't care what the amount was. I just want to understand. And then uh, the most important thing, once we had developed some traction, is we launched in New York. So, you, reason, so your initial traction was in Montreal, yes. where, where you initially yeah, set up? I mean, I don't even know that you could really call it traction, but there was like users and they were telling me that they used it and we had launched an app and there were like five spaces or in it. And people would use this early version of the thing and it'd be like, this is garbage. Like there's some, there's people like Chris, I, Chris Arsenault, who's a kind of a buddy of mine who runs Inovia, it was a big fund in, in Montreal, right. Canada. And like one of his guys had like used it and I'm sure it was like he used the worst space. It's like really embarrassing. And I'm sure he came away and he's like, what the hell? This is the stupidest. And it's not that he was wrong. It was bad, 
but he didn't see what I saw, which is that he didn't see what it would become. Mm. And my point is, is I was just trying to get to the next level of confidence, which is like slight confidence. We launched in New York because I knew we had to win in New York in order to make the company work. And so we launched like three spaces in New York. We were so proud. These spaces, just just to cut you off, by the way, are uh, you're renting these spaces or commercial real estate, right? It, it probably around 500 square feet or tiny kind of meeting rooms that are actually not even really focused on meetings, but they should have been, but they weren't at the time. We leased them out from landlords because they wouldn't give them to us, period, otherwise. Right. And we said, we're just going to put a thing in here and people are randomly going to walk into your building and use it. And miraculously, three people, like three landlords agreed to this. Almost everyone rejected us, by the way. So even then, like landlords didn't want this in their building. Customers they didn't, didn't want know people what to coming do. in and out and cleaning yeah, Customers didn't and- want it. Uh, landlords didn't want it. Uh, so there was like meaningless amounts of evidence that this was going to work. But we had high amounts of vision and confidence in ourselves. We used, we launched these three spaces. Some people that I'd spoken to that were investors at the seed stage ended up using it. One of them, Steve Schlafman, who's an investor at RRE, which is a New York fund, uh, led the Series A round for $6 million in 2014. That's your next round of fundraising. That's my next round of funding. So now I, I'm just trying to think of at, at the at the early stages of Breather, there's probably a couple different approaches of how you could actually get your hands on spaces right now if you if you go and you try to buy space which mm-hmm. obviously is tough to do it's very capital intensive leasing seems to be very capital intensive as well but what about the approach and i assume this is probably the hardest sell of of the three of having the this the landlord mm-hmm. um put it up for or for mm-hmm. rent and yeah. and they collect kind of the revenue yeah. on that side. yeah so this is you are going through the same thought process as every single investor goes through right. and through the same process as every single probably person that runs a podcast would go through as well, which is this sort of lean, like you and like everyone else has gone through this whole lean startup methodology, which is like, oh, you got to test it like without spending any money and God forbid it should be capital intensive and all these things. Like, I hate to break it to you, but like Open Door has raised like $500 million for the most capital intensive business in the universe, which is literally outright buying people's homes in order to figure out what the market is for additional liquidity in residential real estate. So the, the, the real answer to your question is most companies should be started by being less capital intensive. And we've learned these lessons from Uber. We've learned them from Airbnb. We've learned them from, you know, things like Facebook, where these stories are all about these broke-ass dudes, usually dudes, in, uh, you know, a a garage. But the reality is is we're entering into a phase of companies, and Breather was one of these first companies, there were others, WeWork was one of them, Mm -hmm. where capital helps you win. And capital, in the case of commercial real estate, is the only way to get Landlords, the supply side of real estate, to actually pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. And so lots of, and there is a graveyard. And man, like I've been through the ringer on this. So this is an assumption that lots of people made and sat on the other side of it. Wait, we're going to do deals with existing tenants who already have an extra meeting room. And we're going to give them a percentage of the transaction. Well, guess what? Like the customer hates that. And, die, and the company dies. Right. You always see a set of things that you assume to be true. This is what's hard about companies. What's hard about companies is you have a set of things that you believe are true, but you have to be able to reject them if they turn out just not to work. So if we had sat around waiting for the market to come together, suppliers and buyers for existing free meeting rooms, we'd be dead already. We just tried, what's the next stage I need to get to? Mm. I need spaces to prove that I can get bookings. When people go to shitty spaces, get what? They suck, they bounce. So we need good spaces. How are we going to get to good spaces? Fuck, we're going to have to make our own. Fuck, that's super expensive. Design the other alternative is death. So guess what? And now everyone that's at scale in our industry has all made their own spaces and have signed their own leases. Hmm. 
And that's the nature of this industry, right? And and to get those spaces and to be able to negotiate with, with landlords, you need, you need capital backing. So you need to fund. Yeah, I mean, you need security deposits, man. Right. Like all these things that like, and the other thing is, 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 the other thing that's hard about startups is the good thing about young, relatively naive people that don't know the space is they try to reinvent the space in their own way, which is the same thing that I did and lots of other people did when they start companies. The downside of that is you assume all of these startup-y bullshit Silicon Valley things, like, but you can't have something be capital intensive, which is not, like, that's the assumption of literally every investor I ever spoke to in 2013, 2014, probably 2015, and probably a number of them today. Uh, because some, there are exceptions to industries, and you don't know what they are until you've been through the ringer yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, capital intensity in, capital intensity in commercial real estate happens to be one of them. Uh, it doesn't mean it's that way in whatever, gambling, online gambling. It doesn't mean it's that way for, uh, you know, veterinary care uh, or for other, you know, deals. But in commercial real estate, we just happen to bet the right way, which right. is we need space, we need it to be great quality. Hey guys, just a quick word from one of our sponsors, Breather, that helps make this podcast possible. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. To learn more, visit breather.com. This episode is also brought to you by KBD Insurance. KBD Insurance is a Montreal-based insurance broker specializing in commercial, car, and home insurance. We can all agree that insurance is more complicated than it needs to be, which is why KBD's team of over 30 brokers aims to simplify the insurance process for their clients. Check them out on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or visit them at kbdinsurance.com. Life is chaotic. Insurance doesn't have to be. After you raise that, that that next round, that six million dollar round, uh, it sounds like things are are kind of growing in a linear way. Was there a point after you got there that you thought this is not going to work out? Was there ever like a, a really hard moment? Well, for sure, in, yeah. in that business where you like we might fail at this at this yeah. point. So all the time, yeah. Every company that every every startup is always concerned about death and they should be if they're not sufficiently concerned about death they will more they'd be more likely to die mm -hmm. so the way and i want to clarify something that you said because there's something you said is not true but it's an important distinction you said you're growing linearly doesn't it's not like good that. enough right you need to be growing if you're if you're flatlining you're like i'm gonna die if you're growing linearly you think you're doing okay but actually you're wrong you're still not growing fast enough you need to grow super linearly which is mm. to say, like a hockey stick. Mm. If you're not growing like a hockey stick, guess what? You're going to fucking die because no one's going to finance you. So welcome to death. A, just a slower death than you anticipate if you're, then if you're, if you're thinking, oh, I can just double, you know, a, a 2x every, that's not a good example. If you're growing linearly, uh, it's simply not good enough. So I guess I meant that maybe not quite statistically and, and mm -hmm. from like a metric standpoint, but just from a from a, a process of building a business, you know, from round mm -hmm. to round, uh, yeah, city sure. to city, you yeah. know, in, in yeah. a linear way that, that's that's going up. Yeah. What what was the the what what were some of the challenges that you faced that that you were like, OK, maybe this might not work. And uh, I mean, like literally all of them, like whenever any company that has gotten to a certain stage, you're literally always confronted by death. Someone important leaves the company. Some investor you think is going to invest in you falls through. Uh, you burnt double the money in the past three months than you thought you should. And you're like, oh, fuck. Our runway is three months shorter than we thought it would be. Uh, I mean, these are a few super common things that happen to all companies, to all startups. And when you have the experience and you've done a few companies, right, 
then you have the experience to be able to say, well, actually, I'm not going to die from these things. I just need to sort of manage them. But if you're a first-time founder of a company that's that's scaling really fast, like mine, uh, then you are like, oh, crap, like everything looks like death. And actually, it's better to overreact. Uh, So all those things have happened to me uh, and to Breather. They continuously are happening. This Mm -hmm. is like, it's funny, you know, our CFO is, um, is the CFO of a quite famous company from before. And when we were speaking, and I was like, oh, well, you know, you basically worked for a unicorn, like, so you didn't really have a hard job, you know? And he's like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? He's like, you think it's easy in there? It's not, he looks at me and he's like, it's not easy anywhere. It's always hard, all the time. These people that you look at and you're like, oh, they just raised $200 million. Wow, it's a rocket ship. Well, guess what? Like, they're still like freaking out in there. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Because there, there's, still, there's still metrics. Hey, you got you to you back that now. You got to back it up. And I guess the last thing you want is to down round after that. So when after you keep raising money now, presume, like now on your radar, you start getting more and more cities for, for expansion on your radar that, that you see Breather mm-hmm. opening up. And what, what's your, I'm curious about your, your strategy for, launch in a new city what kind of marketing strategies would you deploy when breather enters a new city and now it's time to to get bookings uh so i mean if you're launching a new city there is a lot of structure that needs to go into it and it's very important to understand what it is you want to achieve by doing that a city for its own sake is not worth opening a city to achieve something else is important. So I would say probably the most important decision that we ever made, despite not having evidence, was to launch New York before we knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. There's a set of reasons for this. One, a company that succeeds in Montreal like this is meaningless. A company that succeeds in New York, okay, that's going somewhere. A second thing is proof points. You could open 10 spaces. We only had 10 spaces at our Series A, by the way. Uh, 10 spaces in Montreal, who are you gonna prove? You know, who are you going to prove that to? Montreal investors? Well, guess what? They can't write checks. This is at the Series A stage. These things are important with how you make a decision. Mm. That said, launching a new city for Breather today would depend on existing unit economics of existing cities. If we look at a set of square feet, let's say we have $1 million to deploy or some number, we'd be like, well, should we deploy this in Singapore or should we deploy it in New York? And in this case, because our market is so large in New York alone, it's almost always worth it to just deploy it in New York. So the reality is, is is people will often look at a new city and say, oh, a new city, it's so exciting. We get to launch in this other place. Like, hold on, dude. It's expensive. You have to hire new people. You have to do all these things. Mm-hmm. You Could you be proving something else with less money? Could you be doing it in a different way? Uh, it Companies, one of, the, one of the dangers of startups if you are doing something like this, is to look at a thing and say, this will look good on the outside, so I will make it happen. So someone, for, I'm talking, I'm, I'm thinking of a certain company that I know of that will remain unnamed now where they asked me the question recently, which is why I'm talking about this. Oh, should we, we're going to launch like New York and then we're going to launch like Chicago or something. You'd be like, hold on, what are you trying to achieve? Are you spreading yourself too thin? Are you, no, no, no. Now, that said, if you happen to be launching a new city, and you actually think that it's a good idea, what you actually need are a set of devoted repeat users. But that's not contingent on a new city. You need devoted repeat users everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably the lesson to take from this is you have a single, you have a set of things that you need to prove to get to the next round at any time. Is that new cities? Maybe. Is it, you know, to to uh, hire the the uh, you know a, uh, a head of product or a head of marketing that is going to be able to take you to the next stage is it going to be that you need to understand what your model looks like and how to get the cost of acquisition down at any given time companies that are trying to get to the next stage what they're really looking for and what investors are looking for um, are what is the next level of confidence and security that we can get for ourselves to understand our business better. You start at the seed stage with no evidence and no understanding of anything. When you enter and you launch a product and you're like, do people care? Will they pay? Will they come back? Will they churn? And then at later stages, it's can we launch cities? Uh, Can we uh, go out and we have some $100,000 customers? Can we get a million dollar customer? 
How can we turn the $100,000 customer into a $300,000 customer, et cetera, right? So it's all about the next level of confidence and replicability. So was was Breather always meant to, were you always, did you ever think of moving Breather to Silicon Valley or out of Montreal, maybe to New York, if that's what you saw as the most important market for you guys, or was Montreal always the city where you guys wanted? Yeah, to it's important to be the close to the customer, for sure. So for example, most of our, our customers are probably in New York and San Francisco, right? And in other cities like Toronto, big major cities that just have higher density of commerce and et cetera, et cetera. That said, being in Montreal has a lot of advantages. It uh, has the ability, you have the ability to build something uh, in a new city where there aren't a thousand startups. Like it's, so I think, I think with anything, it's trade-offs. Uh, today, if I was 100%, if I had nothing to do and no fear, uh, what I would do is probably I would start a company remote because the consequence of starting a company remote these days, people 100% believe in that because Silicon Valley is insane and the ability to hire in Silicon Valley is basically non-existent, right? And it's even hard here in Montreal. It's here in, hard in Toronto. It's hard everywhere. So uh, what you're looking for fundamentally is you're looking for how, what advantage can I get from the decisions that I have made? Uh, breather being intensities today could be considered an advantage because we're really spread out, we have a super wide footprint. That is different from an advantage of, oh, we've deployed all our square feet and all our cash into New York, so we'd be denser and stronger in New York, even though we wouldn't have other places. Mm. For Montreal, it's much more like we were able to get great talent. That talent was affordable. Being in Canada allows us certain advantages. It'd be different from we're based in New York. We have, we're super close to the customer. We can go look at our customers, talk to them, understand them better, what their needs are. So for any particular thing, it's like, what is the best decision based on what it is that I need to know and what my what my company really requires? Right. What as Breather continued to grow, what what became the focus as as you raise more and more rounds? Was it um, you know, was it opening more locations? Was it getting more bookings? Did, wh when did profitability come in the picture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, how did that kind of, when you guys really hit your stride and 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 explode in locations, yeah. what became the new measuring stick? Uh, you know, it really depends. I, I would say for things like this, it's largely dependent on the market size of the company. So if we were a meeting room business, then we would start thinking about what it's like to be profitable and why that matters. But as we enter into flexible office, we work as, you know, we, we, we're not directly competitive at WeWork, but we're vaguely in the same industry. And they have recently burned, I don't know if you know this, but something like $1.8 billion in the past very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and the reason for that is because our market and our market is so large. So companies like ours that are growing fast and that have access to capital do not like seek to go profitable. They seek to grow really fast. And so long as you can grow really fast, 100% a year, whatever, some number like that. Blitz scaling in, in a sense. Yeah, blitz, quote unquote, blitz scaling. Right. Yeah. Uh, then you should seek out the cash if it's accessible to you. If the mm -hmm. cash is not accessible to you, then you have something else, you, another choice you have to make. So every round is really looking at how can we grow and how can we become financeable in, if it's if it's in a large market? Mm -hmm. If you discover your company is not growing as fast, then maybe you're in a smaller market than you thought you were. Maybe you have a, it's a large market, but you don't understand it well, or you don't have the people uh, that are right to help you uh, grow the company. So I would say that the objective at any stage is keep the company growing fast, as fast as you can, and as you're doing that, try and prove out. Like, what is the next level to basically keep us growing fast? At the very beginning, that could be make sure the customers like something and they're willing to pass it on to others for free because you have no marketing dollars. Later on, that will be, oh, we, we, we have a set of Fortune 500 customers. We need one more, two more per quarter to double this year. So how am I going to build my sales force, which then becomes a question of how am I going to hire a head of sales? Which, and it goes on and on and on like that. Uh, the stakes become higher at huger, sort of larger financings, but it's the sort of, same sort of way of same thinking logic about things. For, same right, logic for each one, right? That's right. How is, how is 
how has the process been for for fundraising with VC? Uh, is it something that um, that you recommend for uh, younger entrepreneurs? And and yeah, and how's that change as breathers continue to scale and get bigger? So I mean, it depends what your goals are, right? Uh, your goal, if you are taking VC, is to be able to grow something really quickly, because that's really all that venture investors are looking for. The returns that are needed for a venture fund are returns that are much bigger than the average company can provide. So I, I should sort of caveat this before anything and say VC is most companies are not venture backed. Most companies should not take venture. The reason to take venture is if you believe you have an important market ahead of you and that important market requires capital to get there. So in our case, Breather happens to be an exceptional example. It's in commercial real estate. The network of spaces can be in the millions of spaces and the tens or hundreds of millions of square feet. That is impossible to capture without money. Mm -hmm. That's super different from, uh, from an agency where it's going to scale linearly with people. The more people you hire, the more hours you can sell, the more customers you can have. You need a lot of people. It's not the case with products that are going to scale super linearly above the need above the number of employees that you're going to have right like the first employee at google that was a hard employee to get and that required and that gave you almost no revenue but the twenty-five thousandth employee at google is insanely efficient because of the system that's around them and the software that they've built mm -hmm. so the the closer you are to being that kind of pure software product play the better VC will be for your company mm -hmm. and the more customers you can sell to with the existing software you built. So that said, if you're in that situation where you believe your thing can grow really, really fast, then your objective is essentially to understand the dynamics of how venture works. And one of the reasons that I've been able to raise enough money is not only that I was in a big market, uh, and I think I have like some level of intelligence, hopefully, uh, <laughs> but also that... I understand what they need, what matters to them, and how to talk to people. Right. And it's really just an, a way of understanding, having a sense of empathy. Like, if you understand how venture works, which I, I, I think some of it, for sure, I definitely understand really well, uh, then you can understand what matters to them and what they want. And you're like, okay, well, that's great. So I will be able to speak their language, tell them what it is that they uh what why breather or something is a fit for them mm -hmm. but like more importantly than any of that it, it honestly like the thing that people focus on is like i need to raise this or i need to do nah, nah, i need to talk to investors what you really need is you fucking need a great company and and if you have a really great company like it's insanely easy to raise venture right insanely easy the money will come after the money will come after da dax da silva is a great example went on uh, Lightspeed, now a public company, the first quote-unquote unicorn in Quebec, I think, tech unicorn, uh, went on for like 10 years before raising any venture at all. Mm -hmm. And then someone was like, you could scale this. And then Excel put in a very important uh, Silicon Valley fund, put in something like $30 million, right? And now they're public. And now they're public. But that's, that begins with having a great company, and typically it means great founders and great products right. in a big market. So in essence, a great company can get a huge number of great customers. If it's a great company with great founders, it can get a huge number of great customers, money will just come. It'll be on its way. As you've continued to scale Breather and open more and more locations, you've you've certainly developed techniques and strategies for for filling these office spaces. And now I'm talking mainly from a, a marketing standpoint. What is what has been some of the most effective ways for you to to drive bookings for for these locations? You know, early on, my job was to literally do it by myself. That continued for like a really meaningful amount of time. I needed. You know, early on, my job was to actually just go out and get bookings. Like, I started on Sunday. I went to this cafe, like, just down the street. And I was like, how am I going to add 8% per week? That was my objective, was to grow 8% per week every week for as fast as I can. And I did that every week and succeeded 
almost every time by killing myself with effort. And I did that so that I could raise a Series A and that I could be growing as quickly as I could, and it worked. Um, so it would be, you know, the you, you find there's a blog post about this that I wrote on Medium, and it was like basically what I I was able to take advantage of an earlier kind of an early thing about Twitter ads and how Twitter ads worked in order to get my company in front of a lot of people. The story, you can Google it if you like. It is attached with my name, so you'll find it. But the point is, is you're going to need to find something that's just going to be like, it's going to help you get to scale. Like the first customers were have to be people that you know. And then if, typically what you'll do from there is you're like, well, thank you for using the service. We'll use it again. You see if they use it again. If they start to use it again, it'd be like, refer me to someone like you. And then from there, when it starts to be strangers, then you're like, okay, well, what are the strangers that I need to reach? And what's the cheapest way to reach them? This example with Twitter is just that I was able to use, I had a verified account. I had a lot of followers and uh, I was, most Twitter ads on social media, people just wanted like follows and all these things. But I went out and I just said, hey, reply to this ad and no, no, no. So then anytime someone would see the ad, it would be like hundreds of replies under it. And people would be like, holy crap, this is really popular. They would get the conclusion that it's really, I didn't like explicitly tell them so, right. but they would be looking at all these replies and be like, wow, this is a big deal. I need to do this too. And I would get like hundreds of emails. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the state of Breather today? How many, how many employees are you guys? How many cities are you in? How many locations? Yeah, Where, so I mean, we office? have hundreds of locations, right? Like it'll be one day at some point, probably soon. It'll be a thousand locations. I, the, we're in the hundreds of employees, uh, and, uh, I would say, you know, probably at any given time in New York, there's probably like close to 15 cleaners that are roaming around just managing breather spaces, the operations, all these other mm -hmm. things. And, uh, and so it's built out a huge system, right? Product and engineering and like operations and customer service people on the phone. Like it's become a huge, huge thing that requires all types of people, people in their first jobs that, and, and like very, very senior people that could take a, help take a company public. I think I saw breathers raised 70 something million us, maybe, maybe more to date. Yeah. A lot um, more. Yeah. Little more to date. What's the latest cap on that? What we've raised is what you see on the internet is that we've raised over uh, 150 million dollars Canadian, Canadian, okay. 120 US, and more is likely coming. And really, that's just a function of market size. Uh, market size is the larger your market is, the larger institutions will be like, "Holy crap, this is coming!" You know, and uh, so that could be any any company can attack a large market. The best way to do it, though, is kind of the way that we did it, which is to attack a tiny fraction of it first. If you attack meeting rooms and you kind of win in meeting rooms, then you're like, okay, now we're going to day offices. Now we're going to, and you could just kind of go up the chain that way, right? Uh, so if you see a company raising in hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, then you shouldn't assume that your startup can raise hundreds of millions of dollars. You're, you're, maybe your startup, you, dear listener, can raise 10 million bucks and then will reach its market cap, at which point you should sell yourself or whatever mm -hmm. to whoever will buy you, right? Like do not seek out more and more and more funding unless it serves a, like a larger purpose. Is there is there an IPO in the future for Breather? Or? It's possible, anything is possible. Anything is possible. What is what is your role today in, in Breather? I, I, I was the first CEO for six years-ish. And then recently, uh, you know, I had the good fortune of being able to hire an outside CEO, someone who is amazing at the parts of the job that the company needs today. Uh, a lot of the stuff that personally I just was not super interested in doing. Sometimes a founding team will, uh, the company will outgrow that founding team. And so now today as the chairman, what I do is I do a lot of the strategy related stuff. I do the deal related stuff. I do the public facing things, et cetera. And of course I serve on the board. Uh, and so we've gotten to a stage where we've had the good fortune of being able to hire amazing people to be able to do all of the jobs. What is your what is your outlook on on the state of startup in Montreal? 
Is, is there enough community here? Is there enough funding here? And what do you think is lacking in the city to make it a tier one, as you, as you said earlier? Well, the only, the only tier one city is, is Silicon Valley. Right. The only two tier two, excuse me, the only tier two cities are probably New York, London. Maybe there's, uh, I don't even know if London is a tier two city. Maybe it is, but the the uh, genome report just came out, I think, and mm. I don't know how yeah. much you weigh into that, but I guess I think mm. London, uh, Beijing, sure, uh, yeah, 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 L.A. Yeah, and but there's not a, yes, L.A. is yeah. a good tier two city. Right. So, uh, so you see Montreal's tier three. I, I I said that flippantly, but it's certainly possible. The reason why is because it's developed sufficiently. In 2012, it was not. In the early phase of startups, which I remember because I was there, my first job in 2001 was working at a startup that tried to do an early version of Google Maps back in the day here in the city. And uh, at the time, there was no financing, no experience, uh, very few founders who knew how to get it done. Now, like a lot of it is online. There's enough angel investors. Well, not, not actually there's enough. There's like some... And there's some VC up to a certain stage. But what a true tier one ecosystem needs is it needs the whole package, which is enough investment to be able to get you from the seed stage all the way to an IPO. It needs a set of, this is the thing that, that Montreal lacks the most, is that those levels of financing and the ability to get a set of experienced operators in your company. So for example, this is not something that you might be able to relate to personally, but I can tell you that there are people in this city that really desperately need an amazing head of marketing, like a CMO who has managed the marketing at a public company or like an Airbnb or some other version of that, right? But where are you going to find that guy or girl? You're not going to. It's going to be very, You're not very going to difficult. Find it here. You got to go to New York, right? Right. So this is a huge advantage in Silicon Valley that people do not recognize. But it's to like, come back on the, uh, sorry to cut you off, the come back on the financing part. I mean, how important is it that the financiers be in the city specifically? Because it's easy to have, you know, real, you know, join in or lead around, but that round could be completed by VCs all over the world. Of course it right? can. Yeah. So your question is about. What's going to make it a tier one city? The reality is, is for a long time, what will happen is, is investors from New York, from Silicon Valley, from everywhere will take the returns that are made by Montreal companies and they will bring them back to their limited partners, their investors, limited partnerships in London or in Silicon Valley or in Asia. And so that money is not going back to Montrealers. And this is one of the reasons that one of the real things that you need in a startup is you need for it, it to have succeeded after five years and then have someone go like a bunch of people be like, fuck this fucking schmuck. Like he, he, he made this thing. I should have invested it. He came to me. Why did I fucking invest in that? And you're looking like I was looking at the proceeds from the angel investors and in Uber's IPO. Like and some of them I know personally. And it's like, 30k became, became 120 million literally it this was is like a real 320 number. million on like a yeah i guess yeah 30k mm-hmm. 70k 90 yeah yeah they're they're crazy yeah i think and the so, lowest was 5000 return like 23 million or something yeah crazy. that's actually that's a buddy of mine literally oh, yeah. so so that one uh, but that's the thing is then you have a bunch of people going fuck i need to put some money into these things so that's how an ecosystem develops mm-hmm. so what you need the principal thing that montreal needs are uh, the ability to raise scale level cash. I know via there's Omers in, in Ontario. There's uh, obviously the cash to depot, but there are not enough scale level funds and there's no scale level experience for C level or VP level talent. Give us one more, two more generations and we'll get them. In you think York, it's that they far have away? Them. Yeah. Yes. Or generations, startup generations. Okay. Uh, New York has it. Silicon Valley has the most, right? Like mm. if you can get this CMO from Dropbox, well, guess what? Your odds of becoming Dropbox or bigger are way more substantial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Usually I like to ask if if I were to come back five years from now and ask you about the state of breather at that point, what does that look like to you? But, you know, I think 
I, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but I obviously more locations, more funding, more, more revenue, all that. I, I, instead, I want to ask what you are doing five years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the most important thing that I would be doing is I would be helping a lot more companies and being able to be a part of building things that matter. So more important than founding a single company, of course, that's super substantial. Uh, it's you always, once you have kind of this love of building companies and seeing something come from zero and get really big over time, that is a super impressive thing. Like hopefully you get to do it, but even if you don't get to do it yourself, you get to watch it and getting to watch something that is just like didn't exist. Now there's a hundred locations or whatever. There's like 10,000 customers. Uh, and just seeing that is amazing. And it's in very few industries, tech happens to be one of them or whatever, venture happens to be one of them, where you can watch something that didn't exist 10 years ago take over the world, and that can happen in a really short time frame. So that's that's the thing that is most compelling about being in that industry that I'm in. And that's where you want to get more involved. And that you see yourself doing that still here in Montreal? I think I'll probably do that forever. Right. Yeah. It's once you once it's in your blood, it's really hard not to do it. In this city? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Staying here. Yeah. Um, favorite restaurant in the city? Probably Satay Brothers as like the go-to. Mm. Uh, and then, I mean, I'm a big St. Henry guy. My, my favorite cafe right now is September, which is on Notre Dame. Uh, I also like Cordova. There's a set of things. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm one of these people that just visits like a lot of stuff yeah. and, and sees a lot of different things. Like to try new things, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Julian Smith, co-founder and chairman of Breather. To listen to more stories from local startup founders, visit montrealstartups.ca slash podcast, available on all your streaming platforms. If you have questions or comments about our show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at montrealstartups.ca.